If you come to the sermon this morning, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and then we'll begin reading at verse 12. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. Let us again give our attention to God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Amen. We do trust God's blessing again upon the public reading of His Word for His own name's sake. And once again, let us seek His face of our Father in heaven as we would look into this portion today in prayer. Our Father, we would pray that Thy hand even here would lead us and guide us in this portion. Or cleanse us from every sin and Lord, let that stick in our hearts only what is conformable to this inspired and infallible volume, the Word of God. Now help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake, upon whom we desire to lay this request, that our great High Priest, Amen. Well, there is in these three verses a connection. A connection. We've preached on 12 and 13 as one thought, and I think that's good. Solomon goes on, though, I think, as we said, to connect, though, uh, verse 14 with them in this way. You see in verse 12 and 13 a certainty that he has by faith. The word vanity does not occur in those verses. He says rather in verse 12 in the middle about the sinner, yet surely I know. He's persuaded here of truth. Even though the the sinner seems to go on in sin, even though the sinner seems to go on and prolong his days and be successful as it were, Solomon says, yet, surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear before God, or that fear God, which fear before Him. 
but it shall not be well with the wicked. These are things he's convinced and persuaded of that he doesn't always see. But he, he knows by faith the ultimate ends of those that fear before God and those that do not fear before God. However, when it comes to verse 14, he's saying that these two same peoples, groups, the fearers of God, the non-fearers of God, the wicked and the righteous or the just, when we look upon them on the earth, what do we see? Well, this mixed up circumstance, these mixed up happenings, this mixed up fruit or rewards, you might say. But there are just men, but they get treated, things happen to them that you would think would happen to the wicked because of how the wicked acts, and vice versa. There's wicked men. They, things come to them. Things happen to them that their works don't deserve. They deserve the evil, but yet they get good. They get promotion. They get success. They continuance. Solomon is calling us to walk there and saying himself that he has that certainty of faith in those first couple verses. This verse, he's saying we, this is walking, as it were, looking, as it were, by sight. That's what happens. So he says there is a vanity which is done upon the earth. And again he said at the end, I said this also is vanity. Vanity. Well, let's try to go into this verse together this morning. And look at this. And I've titled the sermon, because I think we're all probably familiar with this. It's an old saying. I mean, I think it's not maybe ancient, but it's well used. At least it used to be. Honesty is the best policy? Question mark. You know, we always say, honesty is the best policy. If I remember right, I hadn't read this in a while, but I think Dr. Machen pointed out, it's not always true, practically, is it? And here's a text that shows us that. Sometimes a man tells the truth and does things uprightly and he doesn't get the reward that such actions should bring. So is honesty the best policy as it's used in society? Well, it doesn't seem to be, does it, sometimes? But what the first point we want to say about this text is that outward happenings are not the ultimate sign of one spiritual condition. So the outward things that happen to you and me and others do not ultimately show whether are righteous or wicked. As Charles Bridges said, God never forgets. It never leaves His mind the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He doesn't lose that differentiation. No matter what happens here, no matter what 
things fall out. So he's going to say, but he's not always pleased to manifest it, as Solomon says, in the things that happen to us. The things that happen to us down here. The wicked or the just. God never forgets it. And it's a vital difference. It's a vital difference. That's, of course, said in verses 12 and 13 about the difference and how important it is. Whether you're one that fears God or one that is righteous before God or whether you're one that doesn't fear God and are wicked before God. Isn't that the great question? Job said, How shall a man be just with God? Solomon speaking of these two groups again, as Scripture does everywhere. You remember in Psalm chapter 1, which gives us really the like a little summation, a little preface, as it were, to the whole Psalter. And he, and he speaks there of the ungodly. Same word we have here, for the wicked. He says it in verse 1, 4, 5, and 6. But he contrasts it to the godly. To the man who meditates in the law, who walks in the law of God. Well, it's a constant theme. Because there's two fathers, isn't there? There's the serpent, and he's the father of all the wicked. And then there's Christ's father, who is the father of all them that are righteous. When you read this text about this vanity that is done upon the earth, that there be just men. And whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. How do you see yourself? Are you one of the just men? Are you one of the wicked men? And how do you know? Just a few chapters over. The end of this book. The last verse, which is very significant. These last two verses. But he says in verse 14 of chapter 12 that God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The works of the just and the works of the wicked are either wicked or righteous according to the actual work or to the one who's doing it. The word work there is not itself ethical. It's an action. Something you do, something you say. But if the righteous man does it, it gives it that righteous flavor. Not obvious if he's sinning, but we're talking about the works that conform to one's standing. So this is a just man. He says he can do just things. This is a wicked man on the other side. He's doing wicked things. So whatever work we do, whatever things we do, be judged. Remember that text in Matthew 25 where Christ is on the judgment throne and He sets the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. 
And then He speaks of them about their works. Because the sheep were sheep, because they were just, they had those kinds of works. Because the goats were goats, because they were the wicked, they had their kinds of works. I think it's important to notice that just men have different works than wicked men. Do works save the just men? No. Can't save us. Can't atone for our sins. I can't wash away other sins. It cannot recommend us to God's eternal favor. Just simply because one reason, they're imperfect. They have faults. They have... have of things that take away from their value. The other thing is, they're not perpetual. And they don't continue always. And God desires a full, and requires a full, personal, perfect and perpetual obedience to His law to be saved. Well, none of us can do that. Christ did. I say they can't save us, but they should mark us. That should be something that people think of when they think of you and me. If we claim to be a Christian, we claim to be justified by Jesus Christ, they should see good works. Obviously, when we look at our own lives and works, we think, Ah, Lord God, how small they are. How mixed with sin they are. So Paul said, right? He didn't commend his good works in that way. He said he had them, but they were mixed. And that disappointed him. And that disappoints us. But nevertheless, Paul emphasizes everywhere, as this text here does by stating it like it does, that there are certain works, there's a certain manner of living and acting that accords with our profession of faith, our spiritual state. We often speak of priorities. Well, sometimes it's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Christ said, when answer to the question that they put to Him, what is the greatest commandment? So there's a priority, right? Number one, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then what's the second? He said, does like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Are they our priorities? Because it's not just an intellectual admission. Yes, that is the first commandment. That's the great commandment. And that's it. There are certain parts of love in our souls the world cannot see, like faith. Some of our prayers, Rutherford was one of those that did not pray out loud in his private prayer. Some do, some don't. I'm not saying he never did, but often he did not. The world can't see that. And maybe that's good, you know. We're like the Pharisees. <laughs> um, 
But they can see other things. They can see that you're here today. And you're not at your house. We're out to a job. Of course, I know some jobs you know you have to do on Sundays from time to time. But you see the point. They can see a difference. They go to your bookshelf. Hopefully we, they don't see in our shelves you know, things that are filthy and ungodly and blasphemous. They see things that are wholesome and uplifting and sound in the faith. Of course, as well as natural things we need, you know, for your work and whatever. But, you know what I'm saying. Entertainments, they have limits according to the Word of God, to the new affections that are put in our souls. Well, these are the things, these are the works. We, we try to help the poor. We try to, you know, be good neighbors. And we do, as this, the, the saying says, seek to be honest as a good policy. It is a good, why is it a good policy? Not because it always brings success here, but because God is truth. Why is it good to be moral? Because God is moral. Whatever commandment, to Him and to others. That is the best policy that way. It's not always the best policy here. According to how things work out naturally, as Solomon says. It will not always get you Ahead in this life. I think that's the idea. Honesty is the best policy. It'll work best in this life. Well, they don't always do that. So in that sense, no. It's not the best policy. Solomon is saying in our verse that these outward happenings, the judgments you may get, the setbacks, the disappointments, The griefs, the struggles, don't line up always with your works that come from being a justified man, woman, or child. It's not what you expect. That's why Solomon said, "This is, or there is a vanity that is done upon the earth." And again, he says, "I said that this also is vanity." We said before that you know some translate this word uh, Hebel, which is really basically Abel's name, you know, in the garden. I mean, not in the garden, but after the garden in the early chapters of Genesis, as meaninglessness instead of vanity. And I would submit to you that it is not meaningless. It's not. It's a good time to think about that word again. When you see this happening, when you see those, as we read earlier in Psalm 73, of the wicked, that they don't have troubles like you and me. They're not plagued like us. They have great pride. It compasses them as a chain. In other words, they wear it like a gold chain around their neck. As an ornament. What is it? Violence covereth them as a garment. They put it on. They just go on and do whatever they want. They set their eye, or their mouth rather, against the heavens. And their tongue walketh through the earth. They just talk about whatever and pro- proclaim whatever against man and God. They're, con- they're corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They have more than heart could wish. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They're blessed, as it were, with all kinds of earthly treasure. 
They even said, how doth God know whatever I do? So we read of that, of the wicked here, in such a case. And yet what do they get? As we said, they have all this earth can offer. They don't have judgment immediately. Lightning doesn't come out of heaven and strike them dead. They get the things we'd expect from being righteous. That's why I say it's important this word is rendered vanity. It means empty. In the English word empty, that's the idea. Uh, meaningless, this is without significance, but it is significant to you and me, isn't it? That this happens. That this doesn't seem right. That's why Solomon says it's a vanity, it's an emptiness. You go to your good works and you expect things to work out right here. Normally that should be, you know, naturally, reasonably, that's a good idea. It's not wrong. It's what we expect. But it doesn't always happen. It doesn't give us that which we expect. It's empty of it. It's vanity. Solomon emphasizes in the beginning and the ending of the verse, vanity, vanity. We could almost think of the first chapter. Vanity of vanities. Sayeth the preacher, all is vanity. It's hard. And Asaph, that great believer of the Old Testament... He confessed at the beginning, of course, he had already come to his senses in the sanctuary, that God, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But he almost slipped. His faith was tried because he couldn't see the equality, the equity of God's dealings with the wicked and God's dealing with Asaph, the just the righteous man. But I said, our point here is this. It's a vanity. When we look at it in this life, when we see it, see it. And we all see it. We see it in all different spheres of life. But you know, it didn't confuse God. In Psalm 73, God still knew the ungodly. He still knew the wicked and who they were. He still knew Asaph and who he was. In fact, he goes on to say that they have great judgments awaiting them. And that that Asaph nevertheless was with God continually. That's verse 23. Thou hast holding me up by my right hand. What a comfort. Even when his feet were slipping in unbelief. He looked back and said, Nevertheless, even there, I was with thee. Reminds us of Psalm 139, doesn't it? I am continually with thee. It's the same, basically the same thing there. Wherever we go, even our unbelief, even our falling, even our well-nigh slipping, Even there, the Lord is with us and His hand will guide us. It didn't change Asaph's state because of what others could see being afflicted 
and being plagued and being pushed down, as it were. Didn't make him now an unrighteous man because he's getting some of the things that the works of the unrighteous man normally, or at least sometimes, and of course ultimately will, bring judgment, destruction, grief and anguish. Neither did it make the wicked God's favorites, just men or women. He said the outward happenings, the things that fall out to you, the things that touch you in your life. It's the idea of that Hebrew word to touch. They don't give the ultimate picture of what you are before God spiritually. Remember that. The devil will come and tell you, if you really fear the Lord, if you really believed on Christ like you should, but you wouldn't be sick. You wouldn't be so scraping by in your checkbook. You wouldn't have your business such a hard thing to deal with. And on down the list. It's vanity. It's vanity. Don't let it fool you. It's just how we see in this. Notice how he says it there. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth. Again, life under the sun. In the earth. What we can see and feel and experience. We have to be careful. We don't stop there. We need to see it. It's real. It really happens. That's why I say it's not meaningless. It's not without significance. It is. It hurts us. It confuses us. It gives us consternation. It gives us pause. Is God really good to Israel? To such as are of a clean heart? Yes, city, He is. But we wouldn't always know it from what we see happening to you and me and to others. So that's our first point. It doesn't determine ultimately your spiritual state. What happens out here. But faith does. Let's just follow that up. In case I didn't get it all the way through. Do you believe? In the only begotten Son of God. We'll say that in just a minute as well. When we come to Christ as an example of this. But secondly. Our second point. The outward happenings are not the whole measure of success either. They're not, they're not the whole measure. They're not the whole indicator of your spiritual state. And they're not the whole measure of success either. And I want to consider the Lord Jesus Christ here. 1 John 1. He is called... Or excuse me, 1 John 2, verse 1. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He is said to be our advocate if we sin with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. If there is ever one whom we can without question say, there is the just one. He's called that as well in the New Testament. The righteous one. There he is. Hebrews tells us he is holy, harmless, 
and separate from sinners. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, the Scripture says. There's none like him who loved God with his whole heart and soul and mind and strength and who loved his neighbor as himself. We read of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth there in Luke chapter 1 that they were blameless in the commandments of God. Well, we know they weren't ultimately without any sin. They were very holy people, like Daniel. Hardly, in Daniel's no fault is given against them, but there, Zacharias had a small, I say a small, unbelief, kind of big, but yet they were, they were blameless. They walked with God. Yet they did have sin, Zacharias shows us. All men have sin, even Daniel. But these men were so pure that you and I probably wouldn't see a fault in them. They didn't see that them way themselves. We saw Wednesday night. We looked at uh, Daniel's prayer for just a brief minute. He says that he was a sinner with his people and he did not plead his own righteousness but the mercies of God. But the point is this. you know, Outwardly, they seem so righteous. But we know they had sin too. They admit it. Christ had none. Christ had none. Without fault. So he's called Jesus Christ the righteous. Yet if we go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, this righteous one, so all his works should have merited, among others, full acceptance, full belief, full recognition. I mean, if his truth, if he is the truth himself, the word, the logos of God, and He says, believe on Me and you shall have everlasting life. You would think people would believe on Him and have everlasting life. But what do we find happened to Christ in His ministry? Well, the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 1, verse 11. And I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. Maybe we can think about it in this way this morning. He came unto His own. And his own received him not. It happened to him according to the work of the wicked. It happened to him according to the work of the wicked. So much so that Isaiah, prophesying of Christ, puts these words in his mouth that he thought his work. His labor was in vain. Looking on in the outward, even Christ as a man thought, said, confessed that he thought his work was in vain. He, they received him not. But we know that his success wasn't that way, was it? I say these outward Happenings don't always show the ultimate failure or success of the righteous one or even of the wicked one. John chapter 6, just one example of Christ's victory, Christ's success, we could say. 
John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Now there is success. There is the determination of the Father giving the Son a people that shall come to Him. And Christ says, I will not cast out. Not only so, he will lose nothing of all that the Father gave him. And he will raise them up at the last day. Looking upon Christ's life on earth, from the, from the natural perspective, if we look at it as, as, as uh, Solomon says, the vanity that happens upon the earth. His cause failed while he, when he died upon the tree. It looked like that, didn't it? That's what the Pharisees counted on. If we could just kill him, that'll be it. Get rid of the leader. This blasphemous, law-breaking leader. And we'll stop it. Well, it didn't happen, did it? Because Christ rose again. Christ appeared to His people. Christ strengthened and overcame their unbelief, especially the eleven, and set them on fire to preach the gospel around the world to this very day. You and I can't know what God may do with our labors, with our works that seem to garner only checkmates, disappointments, etc. Christ's work, looking at it from the human perspective while He was here, seemed that way too. It's finished. Not the way Christ said it is finished, but they thought, good, he is gone. His disciples will peter out, as Gamaliel said. If it's of men, it'll just go away after a while. But it's if of God, which we know it is. We should be found fighting against the Lord. And so the Jews have, those that are unbelieving. Thank the Lord, many have been saved then and now. I say, what we see in our happenings now do not give the whole measure of our success. Because God is greater than these things. He turned the death of His Son. And it does not lessen the wickedness of those that put Him to death, according to Acts. 
But He turned that sin, the wrath of man, of Pilate, of Herod, of the Jews and of the Gentiles together to praise His name. Why are we here today? Why do we sing the psalm and the hymns that we did? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection. What they thought in their wrath to extinguish, God turned to praise Him today. Now 2,000 years. Don't just look at what happens in the earth to your good works, to your seeking the Lord, to your trying to follow His precepts, to your sticking to the doctrines of this book, the holy practices that He has instructed us in. You're abstaining from sin. You're seeking to draw your life and your strength from Christ and not from your own works and not from others. If we come to the place where we're persecuted more actively, maybe we lose our possessions. Maybe we lose our reputations. Maybe we lose everything. So that it happeneth to us according to the works of the wicked. Remember your Savior. Remember the apostles. Remember the martyrs and the confessors on down through the ages to this very day. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. Sometimes the Lord to get us closer and closer to that uses the things that are contrary to our works to get us there. You see what I'm saying? Asaph was there. He had seen the vanity, but he fell apart on the wrong side for a while. But he came to his senses in the sanctuary significantly enough, where the light of the Word of God was shining. Then he saw the true nature of things. Then he saw what really becomes of the wicked, what really becomes of the righteous. No matter what happens temporally to our lives and our works. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 1, about this very thing. That we are, in verse 6, we greatly rejoice in the salvation that God has prepared for us, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. That's a good phrase, isn't it? If need be. It's not always needful. But if it is, notice... God is not doing this arbitrarily. Or just because He can, as we often say about things we may do. Well, I do it because I can. It's not how He does it. If need be. Now for, excuse me, 
ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, as he goes on to say, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Don't let the emptiness that you see in this world, the vanity of how your works seem to be rewarded in this life, confuse you with what God is doing. If God puts us in heaviness through manifold temptations, He's only doing it because we need it, because the trial of our faith And I say it only because God says it. Don't take pleasure in it. Don't think He does either in the sense of just arbitrarily. But if it's tried by fire, He says it's much more precious than gold that perisheth. Notice how He says that, that perisheth. Gold will melt and burn up in the last day. Our trial of faith, the faith that God has given will not. You see how He is sifting us. He's trying us. He's getting rid of the dross. By the happenings that come to the wicked works, we would think happening to the righteous. Because He knows. And He's more interested in the most precious things than we are. We're still creatures. We're so childish, aren't we? Clutching on to these little toys and things that you know, are very temporary. And our parents are like, well, listen, you need to open up that hand. Give me that little plastic toy and I'm going to put in a piece of gold for you. No, 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 no. They, that, that toy is colorful. It's, it makes these little noises and it moves and clicks and whatever. They can't understand. Well, many times we're like that in the spiritual life. We think these little... Things, the happenings, the the blessings of this life, we put in the place of the precious gold. It's not just a trial, but what is it? It is getting us to look at Christ who is our salvation. That He might become more precious to us than gold or silver. Is that what he says in the very next chapter? Peter says, If so be, verse 3, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. It says that in verse 7 in the same chapter, Unto you therefore which believe He is precious. Because He's a chief cornerstone in Zion. It's more successful to do the will of God and to suffer so that our minds, our affections become more set on the things above than on the things on the earth. Peter didn't say it's 
fun and comfort. He said you might be in heaviness. But he said there's a great value in it. Because it gets us away from the things that perish, that are temporal, to the things which are eternal. The things that do not, that last forever, do not perish, do not fall away. Our faith in the Beloved Son, in the salvation that He has wrought and is communicating and is going to reveal in its fullest measure of redemption in heaven at the last time. The brethren, take in Solomon's thoughts that it is a vanity which is done upon the earth. It hurts. But so much the more than let us go back to the sanctuary, back to the Word which is read there, and remember that that is not all there is to it. That God deals with His children as they need to be dealt with. And He deals with us even when we're suffering these manifold temptations. As a father who pitieth his children. Psalm 103. Same psalm says that He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Even the heaviest trial. Oh, may God help us there because we have such trouble with these things. And yet there's so many verses like that to help us. Because He knows we're sheep. We need those uh, herbs, you might say, in the pasture when we got cuts and bruises to eat. And so there's many of them scattered out in that Bible for our medicine to make us more healthy spiritually. It draws us back to the Savior. He says, I love you so much. I died for you. It didn't prevent all these trials. It's not what He said, is it? Greater love hath no man than this, and He prevents all the trials from His friends. It's rid of all the uncomfortable and Disappointing circumstances and happenings and reversals. Now he said, The greater love hath no man than this, that he give his life, or lay down his life for his friends. I'm sure you're familiar with John chapter 10. What a wonderful thing to meditate on. The good shepherd, what giveth his life for the sheep. There's the ultimate love. There's the greatest thing that Christ could have done for us. Because His death was not just an example. It was. It is. It's not just a, a confession of how much He thought of us, though it is that too. The Bible teaches though that He laid down His life that He might bring us to God, that He might reconcile us to God, that He might cleanse us from our sins which separate us from God. Colossians tells us the handwriting of ordinances was against us. He, he said, Christ said Himself in John 3 at the very end, that those who believe not, so that's all of us naturally, that the wrath of God abideth upon us. That's what the death of Christ did. He made us His friends. He took away that wrath by taking it to Himself. 
He became unjust, not in his personal character, but in his legal person. In other words, he was imputed. He took on the guilt in the courtroom, as it were, and suffered in our place. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Don't eye too heavily the happenings in this world to you and to me. As if that determined, that just said, just read out there in huge letters that everyone can see, God doesn't like you. Or to the wicked. I don't know that we have any here, I trust not, but others may hear this. Let the wicked not think. Because they have riches. They've got to the top of their profession. They've succeeded in their communities. Everyone thinks well of them. They do what they want. They blaspheme heaven. They despise people. They oppress. They abuse. Commit all types of fornication. They covet and steal. Get away with it. Then, oh, it's God. If there's a God in heaven, and you've heard him say, then he would do something. Well, he will do something. But he's being long suffering. Let them not think that these successes, these earthly blessings, their treasures and their barns, as it were, being full, means that God approves and He's winking at their sin in the sense that He will not deal with it at any time. May they take that as the goodness of God which leadeth them to repentance. It speaks to them. God is waiting to judge. You still have time. Come to me through the Son. And with that, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, give us grace today to take in this portion of Solomon's work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, these vanities which we see, we behold, and they, as with Asaph, they cut to our hearts many times. They challenge our belief. And we could say with him perhaps often that we... Our steps well nigh slipped. Oh God, be with us. May we look back and see in our struggles that yet I was continually with Thee and that Thy hand did uphold me. Lord, work in us that great text, that great confession, that heartfelt utterance of Asaph. That whom have we in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that we desire beside the even our flesh. And, O Lord, our heart faileth. Be the strength of our hearts. Be our portion forever. And we thank Thee, Lord, that on all these things, Thy hand is not as heavy as it ought to be if Thou hast taken into consideration our sins. But it's light. It's only what needs to be done. It's not the strongest chastisement we could have. So we bless thee, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.